our message this morning, which is entitled Justice and Mercy for Sinners. From the Gospel of John, we're going to be in chapter 7, uh, verse 53, and going through chapter 8, verse 11. If you would turn in your Bibles there this morning, and some of you may have a Bible that does not have that section in it. Uh, we do have some copies on the table that do, and we'll explain some of the reason, uh, the absence of that text in some Bibles as we go this morning. But let us uh, first pray. Father God, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would speak to us this morning. We need grace, Father. We need grace to do your word, to do as your word commands us this morning. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill us afresh as we consider the word of God this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we uh, read the text, which is our normal mode, if you're uh, visiting here or, not, or new today, uh, normally we read the text, then we will kind of divide it out a little bit and make some applications along the way. Um, but before we do that this morning, I just want to make some textual notes because this could be a difficult text if you see that uh, your Bible doesn't have it, or if you see the footnote that says uh, that the earliest man manuscripts do not include this section. And uh, there are some manuscripts that actually, uh, early ones that did include this passage, and they place it at the end of John's gospel, or they place it actually in Luke chapter 21 at verse 38, and some several other places. But there's good reason for its inclusion here. First of all, this story that we're going to read and see this morning is old. Uh, the 3rd century AD, it was found in the uh, apostolic constitutions. So they had known of this story and they included it as part of the uh, apostles' constitutions. Eusebius, a church historian, writes that uh, an early father, Papias, who died near 100 AD, told of a woman who was accused of many sins before the Lord. It is, its inclusion in this place of John's gospel fits, and it fits with a pattern of how Jesus taught. So as we come to the upcoming sections that will begin in chapter 8, verse 12, and so on, there is a lesson that Jesus is teaching as he uh, confronts the Pharisees and the scribes later on in, in the text. And this story is a pre-illustration of what he will soon teach. Okay, so it is apropos that it fits here in this point. And if we jump from, from 752, let's say, right to 812, it seems rather abrupt as it jumps in. There's kind of no context as to what's going on. So, But one of the reasons that it may have been ex excluded in the early manuscripts is another problem that we may see here this morning is that it may have been excluded because they wanted to prevent pagans from assuming that Jesus condones adultery. Because as he shows mercy and he shows grace to this woman. Pagans may have heard this story back in that time and thought Jesus was condoning her sin. But nevertheless, I want us to get this, that this passage is consistent with the teaching and it's consistent with the character of Jesus himself. 
And there is in no way its inclusion here would contradict any of the other scriptures. So that is the reason why we are tackling this passage as it comes, as it flows into the book this morning. So what I'd like to do is begin by reading this passage beginning in uh, chapter 7, verse 53, and going through uh, chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to, to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the inspired word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. So the prophet Micah tells us what is good. He tells us what is good, and he tells us what the Lord requires of us. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And the test that Jesus faces in this passage asks the question from the Pharisees and the scribes, will he do what the Father requires of him? That's really the question they're posing. Will he do what the Father requires of him? And the scribes and the Pharisees, they hope to set up a situation in which it is impossible to accomplish the justice of God and the mercy of God simultaneously without condoning sin. This is the situation they're hoping to set Jesus up in this trap. How can Jesus be the merciful one who shows mercy to sinners and yet at the same time, carry out the justice of God and not condone sin. This is what they determine as an impossible situation for Jesus, a trap for him. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees are correct in one sense in assuming that, humanly speaking, the justice of God and the mercy of God are impossible for any one of us to personally perfect and to personally accomplish that all the time. They're right in assuming that in our humanity, this task is impossible. But if you know anything about the scriptures and what Jesus teaches with God, all things are possible. And that's what we're going to see in this text. So what I want to do first is just set up the scene. So let us look again at 753 through 82. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
So where does Jesus go to prepare himself to face any situation that might be coming his way that will prepare him to do what is required when it comes to judging with mercy, when it comes to carrying out the justice of God without condoning sin. Where does Jesus go? Everyone else goes to their own home. But Jesus goes to the same place that you and I must go. We must go to the Father in prayer. Jesus' practice was to get away, to go to the Father in prayer, to seek union with Him, to understand His will to go and separate himself to God. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives alone and he wants to seek the will and the heart of the Father. It is there that Jesus then is readied. He is readied for what will come before him next. As I was thinking and preparing about this this week, and man, what an, what an apropos passage for just life and how we are uh, living this life as a Christian. Because you and I make judgments every single day. We make judgments in our relationships with fellow church members, with family members, with neighbors, with friends. We make judgments with people who are opposed to the gospel, people who embrace the gospel. We make judgments every day. And as we see from the prophet Micah, God requires that we make those judgments with mercy according to his justice, without condoning sin. Now think about that. In all of our relationships, is that not a task humanly impossible? Without the help and without the understanding of the will of God. Our preparation for such things, for such judgments, ought to begin just as Jesus did, time spent alone with the Father in prayer. Time spent alone with the Father in prayer to understand His will. You see, prayer makes us personally acquainted with the will of God, doesn't it? Prayer makes us personally acquainted with what is justice in God's eyes. Prayer personally connects us, though. This is what I want us to get. Prayer personally connects us with God's love for sinners. Prayer personally connects us with God's love toward sinners. Because you and me too go before a holy God with our sinful self. And he's acquainted with us. He loves us. And he longs to meet with us. Prayer personally connects us to the love of God. But what else does prayer connect us with? His holiness. Prayer makes us painfully sometimes aware that God is holy and we are not. Prayer connects us in that way. So I would ask us this morning as a, sort of a, a challenge. Are you daily in preparation to do justice, to do loving kindness, in humble submission to the Lord? In our daily judgments, are we prepared? And I would ask us this question, if you say yes or you say no, either way you might ask yourself, how then is my prayer life? Am I connecting with God's holiness in prayer? Am I connecting with his love for sinners? Am I connecting with his will? 
Am I being adjusted in myself that my will might align with his? I really believe that the place to go, the first step in doing justice with mercy, without condoning sin in all of the judgments that we might make, begins where Jesus began. And he began in prayer. The scribes and the Pharisees then, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So the scribes and the Pharisees here, they attempt to set up Jesus to either commit injustice, to deny mercy, or to somehow condone sin. They certainly knew of Jesus' teaching, right? In Jesus' teaching, he had called the, the burden and the heavy laden to come to him that they, that they might find rest, right? They might find their rest in him. They might find forgiveness in him. If Jesus did as they charged him to do to stoner, they would say to, to those, why do you want to follow him? Can you really come to him and find rest? Or will you come to him with your sin and find that you get stoned for it? If he shows mercy to her, they would suppose that he is denying the justice of God and condoning her sin. They think they've laid a trap. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. And see, in that culture and in that time, to bring a charge worthy of the death penalty, the scribes and the Pharisees had to be eyewitnesses of the actual fornication as it was happening. So think about what they're doing as they're bringing this woman before Jesus. They are saying, in essence, we watched it happen. We were there. And each person had to have the exact same evidence. There could be no variation in the story. right? It had to be exactly the same. Because if it wasn't exactly the same, then the charge could not be brought against her to the point of death. So the death penalty had very serious, serious implications and measures of protection, right? So these guys were there. Why? Perhaps were they there? Becomes the question. Why did they witness this act happening and all of them at the same time? with as many witnesses as come. What I want us to notice in this passage as they bring this woman, Jesus says nothing. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. They pose this question, what shall we do with her? The law says to stone her. He says nothing. He just bends down and he writes on the ground. And there's much, much speculation as to what Jesus is writing down. Perhaps since John had already taught us that Jesus did not need to be told what was in the heart of a man, he simply wrote their names and right alongside them a truth about their heart. 
Nobody need to tell Jesus what was in the heart of a man, so here they are. Perhaps Jesus is writing down a truth about their true heart's condition. Perhaps with one, he's writing their name, and then he says, liar. Perhaps another, it's thief, murderer, fornicator. But certainly for all of them, he could have wrote extortionist. Perhaps, since they were eyewitnesses to this, he wrote adulterer, fornicator, by some of their names as well. Perhaps he wrote this. I thought of this. What if it, what if it was this? Brothers, you have a plank in your eye. What if he just wrote their name and said, you have a plank in your eye? Listen to what he says. You have a plank in your eye. Maybe he says, you're going to be judged according to that plank. Perhaps. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. As I said, you and I, we make judgments every day, and we must. Preparation begins as Jesus began, praying that God's will will be revealed to you, that His Spirit would align your will with His will. And secondly, we must prepare ourselves by asking God to reveal in us our own unrepentant sin. The own unrepentant sin in our lives. Before we go to make judgments that are, are both just, merciful, and do not condone sin. We must ask, Lord, where is the sin in my own self? In our own unrepentant sin, where is it, Lord? We must ask those questions. The tables are turning here upon the scribes and the Pharisees. See, Leviticus calls for the stoning of the man as well as the woman, doesn't it? Both the adulterer and the adulteress must be stoned. But yet they bring this woman here without the man. I suppose he could have written on the ground, where is he? What have you done? Did you know him? Did you use him to set up this woman? Is he too a co-conspirator with you? He might have asked, are you violating the law according to Deuteronomy 17.11? According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you either to the right hand or to the left. Yet they bring only this woman. As we look in our text at verses 7 and 8, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So here it is. Jesus is able to judge here rightly because he was perfectly connected to the will of the Father. Secondly, if he had to examine in himself, he was sure that he was without sin. And thirdly, Jesus is able to judge this woman's situation because unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, this woman was not an object. They had made her an object 
to be used. This woman was to be used. She was not a person to them. She was an object to be used for their own gain, for their own purposes. But unlike the Pharisees, this woman was not an object for personal agenda. Jesus had compassion on her because she was a person. Because he saw her as a person inherent with dignity. She was a person created in the image of God. A person who was to be loved. Now, is that how we judge one another? Is that how we judge one another even when another does us wrong? Do we say we want to maintain that person's dignity? And then at the same time, we don't want to condone their sin. The justice of God must be carried out. We must tell the truth. But do we love them? Do we uphold and maintain their dignity as a person, as Christ would when we make our judgments? That this is a person worthy to be loved. Worthy to be loved. Do we act justly and with loving kindness in humble submission to the holiness of God, prayerfully connected to the Father, prayerfully asking the Lord, if there be any wicked way in me, show me. And do we have the compassion of God towards persons with a desire to maintain the dignity of their image-bearing personhood? That should be our questions in our own selves before we make judgments. If the answer is yes, then we're able to judge with the justice of God and with the mercy of God and not violating the holiness of God, and we are not then condoning sin. Now, as we look at verse 9, I love this, this uh, section of, or this verse in this passage because of what it says about our standing before God. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. See, the, the accusers have seen the handwriting on the wall against them, whatever that was. They recognize that they are in no position to judge in this situation. For whatever reason, Jesus has, has explained to them by the writing on the ground. We don't know what that is. But for some reason, they have understood, I am in no position to judge this woman now. And they each leave. But this woman stands alone before Jesus. That's another thing for us to remember as we practice doing justice with mercy, is that God is the judge that we will all have to stand before one day. And that everyone that we try to correct, encourage, to admonish, ultimately, they must stand before a holy God. We are not their final judge. They must stand before a holy God. As we make judgment in the household of faith, we must also remember this as we relate to one another, I think. I think we often appropriate God's mercy in our own lives, right? But should one of you sin against me, maybe I want God's justice for you, even though I've done the same thing. And when I do the same thing, I go before God and say, God, please give me mercy. I plead with him for his mercy. And when I pray for the one who has sinned against me, I say, God, give them justice. I want them to have justice. Give me mercy, but give them justice, right? 
But we should remember this as we relate to each other in the household of faith that Romans 8.1 tells us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And we must apply that as much towards our brothers and our sisters as we appropriate it for ourselves. We must. And to everyone in this room, I will tell you this, or ask you this question actually, will you stand alone before God? I hope that you allow that to set in. It's a very dangerous thing for you or me to stand alone before the righteous, holy judge. It is a scary thing to put our hands alone, put our lives in the hands of a God who is wrathful against sinners every single day. It's a dangerous thing when I ask you, will you stand alone before God? Because if you stand alone, are you prepared to receive in yourself the justice of God for your treason against Him? If you stand alone before God, are you prepared to receive the penalty for your sin? Sin must be paid for, or God is neither holy nor is He just. Will you stand alone? Let us look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This woman stands before Jesus, and he has compassion on her. He gives her dignity as a person created in the image of God. He chooses to love her. He chose to save her. He will not condone her sin, but he will soon take the penalty her sin deserves on himself upon a cross. In me, Jesus says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Go and sin no more. You have been set free, but it's in him. It is in me. It is through faith in him that he sets this woman free. It is through his atoning death for her that he can say to her in this moment, go and sin no more. And he is not violating the justice of God and he is not violating the mercy of God. He's not condoning that sin. He's saying, go and sin no more because in me, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You go and sin no more. And basically when he's saying you go and sin no more, what is he saying? He's saying what we say as we proclaim the gospel, this very important component that sometimes we forget. As we proclaim the gospel, we always proclaim that God is holy and righteous, that man is separated from God by his sin, and that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for sin. But there's one more aspect, repent and believe. That is the response. And what he's saying to her, go and sin no more. Repent and believe. Repent and believe that it is in me that God has set you free, that God is showing you mercy, that I love you. 
I know you, I've seen you, I have compassion on you, a sinner, and I love you. I do not condone your sin, friend. I'll pay for it. Will you trust in me? Will you trust and believe in me, in my atoning death for you? Will you trust me? Respond to the free gift of repentance, in repentance and faith. Stand before God trusting in my righteousness. So when I say, will you stand alone before God? You say, no. None of us in here should say this, that you will ever stand alone before God. I stand in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. That is where I stand. I stand in the atoning death of Jesus for a sinner like me. I stand in His atonement because God has shown me mercy. I did not receive the justice of God. The justice of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ in my stead for my sin. That's what I trust in. And I go before God and then we can go boldly, right? Because what a scary thing to go alone. What a scary thing to go alone. I want none of you here to go alone before God. Go with Jesus by faith. And trust this, that He loves you. He's merciful towards you. He laid His life down for you. But you must repent and believe. Go and sin no more seems like an easy thing to say to a person, doesn't it? Just go and sin no more. But He's saying more to this woman here. He's saying a lot more. It's, it's loaded. If you know that I love you, you will respond in faith to me. You will respond with knowing that that sin has been covered and in graciousness and in thanksgiving for what I've done for you. You will want to please me. You will want to please the Father step by step as you go. Go and sin no more. Live no longer in the way that you once did. Live for me, the one who died for you. There is, therefore, no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Walk humbly with our God. Do justice. Live according to the kindness and mercy of God towards others. Flee this sin, he would say. And you are free indeed. I hope that as I ask this question, will you stand alone before God? That you say no. I will stand before God in the atoning death of, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But I do want to warn you this morning, any of you in here, this is a warning for you to heed. If you stand alone, you stand condemned. So I will ask you this, having heard that warning, will you repent and believe and stand with Jesus? Let us take now a moment of silence just to reflect on what God's word has spoken to us and how he's calling us to respond to his word. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing atoning death of Jesus Christ that has set us free. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance and faith again today, that we continue to walk in continual repentance and faith, aiming to please you for all that you have done for us and in us and through us. Lord, we ask that we judge rightly.
honestly. We ask, Lord, that you help us to not condone, condone sin, but for also for us to see sinners as persons for whom you died. It's a delicate balance for us, Lord. So we ask, Lord, that you would compel us to pray each day, Lord, compel us to pray that we might have the compassion for sinners that you have, that we might desire your justice, that we might exemplify mercy and kindness, that we, Lord, might be humbled by your holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.